Full Court Fits is The Ringer's new weekly NBA video series hosted by Big Waz, a.k.a. Wozni Lambre. Each week, we take you around the world of NBA fashion and share can't-miss style choices from your favorite players and keep you up to date on the latest news and releases in sneaker culture. Waz also talks to experts like Damian Lillard's personal stylists to give you behind-the-scenes looks at how the NBA's biggest stars choose their outfits. New episodes drop every Friday, so make sure you're subscribed to The Ringer's YouTube channel at youtube.com slash The Ringer so you never miss an episode. There's no better feeling than a personal win, and the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. If you're thinking, I should go for a run today, but it looks like it could rain, Sierra says save on epic rain jackets. If you're also thinking... But I can't go out in these beat-up old running shoes. Sierra says, save on top brand running shoes. And if you're still thinking, but I'm also busy performing brain surgery, well, then we say, you really should have led with that. Sierra, let's get moving to your local store, like now. Go! Hello and welcome to The Ringer MLB Show. My name is Michael Bauman and I'm a staff writer at The Ringer and I have to work against muscle memory because Zach Cram is not here with us today. Uh, I'm joined by the old reliable, the man who never goes on vacation, Ben Lindbergh. <laughs> How you doing? Hi, I'm doing all right. This takes me back to when Zach was still in middle school and this used to be a two-person podcast. I was just thinking, I was thinking the same thing that it feels so weird to do this without Zach now, but you and I podcasted together just the two of us without a net for like three years and yeah somehow we made it work despite our many feuds i'm going back going back all the way to all the bad decisions i've made in my youth (laughs) because it definitely feels uncomfortable doing this zach uh i think he'll be back next week right he's taken vacation to uh to the 1860s and so is out of touch so we've had to do more of the organization on our own, and I don't like it. So uh, please come back soon. Uh, also on vacation, Bobby Wagner, who I don't give a damn if he ever comes back because in the <laughs> in the past four days, the Phillies have made up three games on the Mets in the in the NL East. So That's I think right. Bobby. Now that Bobby's not around to drive the Mets, uh, things are going more my way. So uh, take all the time you need, big guy. Uh, <laughs> all right, we'll start with. Some some news, you know, we saw some promo shots of some fancy new uniforms. And obviously, Ben, you're the the, the person to talk to about baseball oh, uniforms. Yes. Go to guy. Yeah. For the Field of Dreams game, which is going to be next week between the Yankees and the White Sox uh, in Iowa. Um, it'll be nice for people in Iowa to be actually be able to watch a baseball game since every team in the country is blacked out on MLB.tv there. Uh, ben, what's your what's your take on these on these promo shots and the you know, this, uh, this special event. 
So obviously it's a stunt, it's kind of contrived, but generally I'm in favor of playing baseball in as many places as possible and playing Major League Baseball in as many places and strange settings as possible. So in that sense, I like it. I think one of the strengths of Major League Baseball compared to other sports, other leagues, is the eccentricities of the playing surfaces and the dimensions and the way that you really get a sense of place. And so playing in a cornfield in Iowa, I think, goes along with that. And I kind of have mixed feelings about the inspiration for this event, Field of Dreams, the movie, which most people, it seems, either have strongly against feelings (laughs) or strongly for feelings. And somehow, even about that, I found a middle ground and just kind of generally enjoy it, despite thinking that it's totally ridiculous and also sends some very strange messages, frankly. But I kind of enjoy it for its ridiculousness. And so... Most people, it seems like, you know, either they can't tolerate it or they break down sobbing because it reminds them of their dad or whatever. <laughs> but right. For me, it's neither. And so I don't have as much emotional baggage on either extreme tied up in this event. So I guess I'm generally looking forward to it. And I saw a picture of Lance Lynn wearing an old timey uniform and it really seemed to suit him because he has the old timey body type. So he does not have the old timey body. Do you have any idea well, <laughs> what like the average major league baseball player in 1919? was like five foot four <laughs> to like, scale they though, put is, lance lynn in a circus if he, he is, showed up he's twice the size but in terms of his rotundity or his dimensions uh, you know he doesn't necessarily look like he has taken advantage of all of the latest training methods and advances although maybe he has so he in has, that sense yeah. you know he, he looked like i don't know late career babe ruth or something wearing those unis you may not like it but this is what uh, peak performance looks like <laughs> so I've yeah heard. i think it's It's a stunt, but I think it's fair to say, and correct me if I'm wrong, that the editorial stance of this podcast is broadly speaking pro stunt, right? Like we, yeah. So it's cool. You know, it's a long season. You might as well do something interesting. I think, you know, it's silly, but I'm enjoying the, the Craig Kimbrell with his arms out looking like a scarecrow, uh, in the middle of the cornfield, that shot that's circulating on Twitter this morning. Um, yeah, it's, it's cool. Um, yeah, of course you're you're the one person who's who's got middle ground on Field of Dreams. You know, it's a <laughs> it's a movie that I think speaks to a certain generation of baseball fans uh because it's about the stunted emotions of male relationships. Yes. Like men will literally bulldoze their cornfield and build a baseball stadium <laughs> instead of going to therapy. Yeah, do um, we still need Field of Dreams in the post Ted Lasso era or well, <laughs> maybe we've moved yeah, beyond I was, it? I mean, there's that my like you and I are geriatric millennials. I was going to say our checklist to to get to to these things was like goodwill hunting and everybody wants some. And the the one song from Crazy Ex-Girlfriend about how you need to use sports analogies to talk about feelings with your dad. Um, and, I, you know, I think that gets us to, to the right place. There is one line that I think really illustrates, you know, speaking of of you know, stunted male, male relationships where we can't, you know, really talk about our feelings. It, it illustrates, I think our friendship, or at least your feelings towards me. And, uh, this is from Terrence Mann. Uh, I'm going to beat you with this crowbar until you go away. Um, (laughs) you know, that's something that I think is really, uh, 
really <laughs> captured our working partnership. Uh, yeah. Well, I am glad that uh, at least for one thing, the game, the Field of Dreams game is not segregated, unlike the game in the actual Field of Dreams. Yeah, no kidding. I am disappointed, though, that there is an outfield fence. It seems to me that you should just play with the cornfield. And if you hit it into the corn, then you have to venture into the corn and disappear. And <laughs> yeah. That, I think, would be really, you're not taking advantage of the cornfield if it is roped off, if it's off limits. So I think that should be playable. Yeah, I think that's a ridiculous take because, like, you saw the movie, right? Like, oh, it's a deep fly ball to right field and Aaron Judge goes back into the corn and disappears and goes to purgatory. Yes. Like, the Yankees have to play in the pennant race after this. Yeah, they've they can't lost risk, outfielders. Yeah, they can't risk losing people to metaphysical curiosities like the, the ghost cornfield. Um, one last thing is about Field of Dreams and its sort of generational impact. And I think, you know, maybe our generation, like you said, doesn't have that strong relationship, which, which is why, like, you and I, I think both sort of think it's hokey, but don't find it, like, offensive the way, you know, Craig Calcaterra writes about how hokey uh, Field of Dreams is all the time. But I do think it's a, it's ripe for a remake because it's been 30 years. And so what that means is, like you get the boomer dad, maybe maybe this relationship is literally Ray and Karen from uh, from Field of Dreams, the boomer dad who's obsessed with Pete Rose. And then instead of the fight over the Vietnam War, they have the the fight over like Occupy Wall Street or something. Uh, and then Karen goes off and they never talk again. And then, you know, and she says, you know, Pete Rose was a real piece of shit. And she goes off and discovers that he was a real piece of shit. And Ray, instead of bulldozing his cornfield for a, a baseball stadium, bulldozes it again for uh, a portrait of Donald Trump. And that's the, the you know, the boomer dad millennial kid. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah, I, speaking of uh, Craig Calcaterra, he did a great pitch. I subscribed to his newsletter, and on Thursday, he he came up with a, a pitch for a sequel to Field of Dreams in which uh, Gabby Hoffman would reprise her role as Karen Kinsella as uh, an adult now. And I won't spoil the entire thing, but I think it was actually a, a pretty good idea. And Terrence Mann still with us, so he can uh, be in the movie. And in Craig's conception of the movie... He's not uh, no, he's not... He, he goes and disappears again. Well, yes, like, he does. It's the whole point of the cornfield. He's not alive at the end of the movie. I mean, he's with us in real life, so conceivably he could be in the movie in some and way. And this is but, how uh, I can tell that, that you've basically never left New York City is you don't know not to walk into cornfields if you want to walk out the other side. That's true. I have done a corn maze in my life. I enjoy a good maze. but I love uh, a corn maze. Yeah. In Craig's conception, uh, Ray and Annie have long since gone their separate ways, which I think is probably what would Accurate. happen if you have yes. seen the movie. Yeah. <laughs> Tour de Force by Amy Madigan in, in yes. Field of Dreams. And whatever, whatever else you, you could say, uh, really underrated performance. All right. Mm -hmm. uh, the other big news of the of the week, Max Scherzer. Well, I guess some of the the big news of the week. Max Scherzer made his Dodgers debut, uh, pitched very well, left to a standing ovation, got a curtain call, and the Dodgers also signed Cole Hamels, uh, who's been on the shelf really for about uh, for about a year and a half since he had trouble breaking into the Braves rotation last year. And you came up with a, a I think a pretty funny premise uh, yeah. for what this means for the Dodgers roster construction. 
Yeah, get the gang of aces from 2013 back together. It's like from this spring when people were joking that the Orioles were trying to assemble 2013's greatest rotation with Matt Harvey and Felix Hernandez. And the Dodgers are doing that, except with guys who are still good. <laughs> so they still have Kershaw, of course, and they have David Price, and now they have Scherzer, and now they have Cole Hamels. So they are collecting a lot of the best pitchers from about eight years ago. So I was wondering who would be next, which 2013 ace would you stunt cast as a 2021 Dodger? Well, it's this is a tricky question because they've already had most of those guys already. Hyunjin <laughs> yeah. Ryu's been on the Dodgers. Dan Heron's been on the Dodgers. Matt Latos has been on the Dodgers. Homer Bailey's been on the Dodgers. Zach Granke's been on the Dodgers. Yu Darvish has been on the Dodgers. Uh, Hiroki Kuroda was was my, you know, big... I oh, yeah. Loved I Hiroki Kuroda, too. but also mm-hmm. was on the Dodgers. So, <laughs> like, they've done this already. Yeah, no, you make a good point. There are some guys still floating around. I, I guess they missed their chance to sign Scott Casimir, let him go to a division rival and to no, the Olympics. No, he's been on the Dodgers already. <laughs> well, they yeah, no, that's chance. true, too. Yeah, I guess <laughs> he's another one. Uh, John Lester was there for the taking. <laughs> I don't think you really want to take him anymore. Like, who is still good from 2013, who is still active and pitching for some other team? I guess Adam Wainwright is still around, although it's hard to well, imagine that be him fraught. Yeah. Yeah, pitching anywhere other than St. Louis. And then you've got injured guys or guys who are on the comeback trail. Justin Verlander, Chris Sale. Like, there's plenty of time for Chris Sale to be a Dodger at some point. Not this year, obviously. But, you know, when he's 37 years old, then... He'll probably be the lefty bullpen guy for Los Angeles. So I could see that happening. Yeah, I think Verlander's the the serious pick because he's going to be a free agent this year and may very well want to come back. You know, you mentioned the Adam Wainwright sort of playoff baggage being fraught. I don't know if that's any more or less true with him than Hamels, uh, considering uh, what, um, you know, those those two NLCS, which were so far in the past, uh Cole Hamels was still basically a child. Uh, Clayton Kershaw was literally a child for this. Um, I would bet my bottom dollar that Corey Kluber ends up in a Dodgers uniform at some point. Yeah. Like that just feels like it. it's kind of incredible that that hasn't happened already. <laughs> yeah, they love taking a flyer on the injured guys. <laughs> yeah, that could happen. Uh, I'd love to also love to see them dig up CJ Wilson. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there are some guys I'd I'd love for them to bring back into baseball, like Ubaldo, I think, technically retired last September. But could he come back in a bullpen role for the Dodgers? Maybe they rehabilitate Ubaldo. That'd be fun. Yeah. Uh, Bartolo Colon. Yeah, Bartolo Colon. Is he not pitched for the Dodgers already? <laughs> I don't think so. I just sort of assume that Bartolo Colon's pitched for everybody, but I guess that's not yeah, literally true. Uh, no. Steven Strasburg, not now, but in about mm. three or four years when he's sort of mm-hmm. on the back end of that contract and they get the Nats to eat a lot of salary and he comes back and puts together one <clears throat> mostly healthy 25-start season and the Dodgers win the World Series again. I think you can write that in ink in your, yep. on, in your calendar around 2025 or so. That's a solid pick. Uh, when I was going back and, and looking up the names, you know, in the the effort to remember some guys, uh, I noticed something interesting on baseball reference. And that's it's this 36 pitchers through at least 200 innings in the 2013 Major League Baseball season. <laughs> How many are we going to get this year? I I don't know. I if it's more than like a dozen, I'd be surprised, frankly. I, I mean, I don't have the the numbers up in front of me, so I'm sure there's. You know, yeah. if Zach were here, he would have an actual <laughs> educated guess about that. But 
Yeah, I mean, even in uh, in 2019, it was, I think, 15 guys got to that point, and it's going to be fewer this year. I, we're going to get to the point where we're not going to get 36 guys to qualify for the ERA title uh, in a, in the next couple of years. And that list of some of these guys uh, weren't um, weren't all the way up at, at 200 innings, but but they were close. I think Travis Wood finishing exactly 200. Kyle Kendrick was in the 180s. You'd never let pitchers like that throw that many innings. And like this was not that long ago. This was you know half the half the rotation of the the World Series favorite was in its prime while this was going on. And it's I don't know. It like it it's baseball's evolving so quickly. It almost defies the boiling frog metaphor. Um, yeah. Zach Wheeler is the major league leader in innings pitched as we speak, and he's on pace for 220. So that's the ceiling now. Yeah. And I think Wainwright pitched in the 240s a couple years before that. Felix and Roy Halliday pitched up to 250, which I don't think anybody's done since. It's, uh, man, baseball is a land of contrasts. <laughs> it's a fast evolving thing. You know what's not evolving quickly? You what's know, that? what is the alpha and the omega, the fixed point? Mike Trout who on Saturday reaches a a milestone. Mike Trout, who has been 24 years old since about 2011 or so, uh, turns 30 on Saturday. Happy birthday to the Millville Meteor. Uh, Ben, what are your emotions about this? This is a big moment. He also reached the 10 years of service time. Uh, I think this week, he's eligible for Hall of Fame induction, having played in 10 different championship seasons. So, man, what a... What a time to look back on, you know, the, still the the greatest uh, player of the generation with still, you know, still maybe another 10 years left in his career. Let's hope if he ever gets back from this uh, career-threatening calf strain, which seems to have sidelined him for longer than anyone could expect. But hopefully that will be a, a blip in the, wrong, in the long run. I, and Yeah, I think that's a really, you know, really ideologically or logically consistent position for you, a good hill for you to stake <laughs> out and fortify being the biggest Shohei Otani fan on the planet and think, you know, talk about how one guy who's gotten hurt a couple times is said, Oh man, he's, he's, he's never going to be the same after a pulled muscle. Have you seen how many muscles this guy has? It's it's like, obviously he's going to pull one every so often. It's, it's fine. He's going to, you know, he's not going to be the, the nailed on 10 war a year guy that he was in his early twenties, but let's not act like, you know, this is, late career Mark McGuire. Oh, sure. He was off to the best start of his career before he got hurt. So it's just a matter of how often he'll stay on the field and and whether this is a prelude to a more injury-prone 30s. Let's hope not. But we're looking back, at least for now. We can look forward in a few minutes. And yeah, it's been an incredible 10 years. It's been about the best baseball decade ever. And July 8th, 2011 was when he made his Major League debut. So we passed the 10-year anniversary of that less than a month ago and Mike Trout turning 30. I mean, that makes me feel old. Obviously, we are older than 30, but Trout, just because he came up and we got to know him when he was so young and so good and had just turned 20 in his 2012 season and was already the best player in baseball. Like, For me, that's kind of how old he'll be forever in my mind's eye, even though he is obviously aging in real life. But you 
couldn't have asked for a, a better 10 years. And you could have asked for a much better 10 years for the Angels, obviously, but Trout did as much as he possibly could have. And it's funny you mentioned Otani because uh, Trout, until Otani came along, was the player who had given me the most joy over the course of several seasons over my time covering baseball professionally. Not just watching him on a day-to-day basis, but just kind of marveling at the accomplishments and the pace and the stats that he put up and how few weaknesses he had and how many strengths he had. And the shape of his production has changed over the years. He's kind of been a few different models of Mike Trout, but they've all been incredible, (laughs) including the current model when he's healthy. And so it is very surprising that someone came along on the same team and eclipsed him in my eyes (laughs) when it came to my affection and how close the attention I'm I'm paying to him is. But I don't want to discount just how much joy he has given me and most baseball fans over the last decade. It's been an incredible career, and hopefully that career is only about half over. Yeah, the the point about the shape of his production changing, I think that is, it's a little bittersweet. I think the, this was always something we sort of suspected about Trout just based on his physicality and the way you know baseball players age, which was that as time went on, he was be- going to become you know less of an all around you know speed and power guy, and more a, a power on base guy, and that's definitely borne itself out. Um, but it is it's a little sad that we you know that that first year he led Major League Baseball in stolen bases, and you know we're never going to see that forty five fifty field or fifty steel trout again. I don't know if we're going to see like the 2530 stolen base trout again. Uh and that, you know, that's sort of, you know, that one Eric Davids or one Eric Davis season that that everybody uh hangs on to, what was it, like 37 home runs and 50 stolen bases. Like that seemed like Trout could have done that. And some of the injuries he suffered and there was a what was it, a broken thumb from from sliding into or diving into second base. Right. Like, you know, yeah, I was gonna say it, it's it's not as if he's slow now. He is still among the fastest players in baseball, and at least according to sprint speed, he really hasn't lost that much, at least high end speed in the last several seasons. We don't have his sprint speed from twenty twelve, and I'm guessing he was faster then than he is now. He's, you know, still a speed demon, but I think part of it is just that when you hurt yourself sliding a few times and also when you you develop as much power as he has than kind of the cost benefit analysis, you know, the the calculus of do I actually want to risk myself for this one base here when I could be costing myself weeks or months if something goes wrong. Ultimately, a lot of guys follow this type of progression. So now we're watching Tatis and Nakunya, you know, when those guys are healthy, at least they're kind of your power speed threats, whereas Trout is mostly a power threat who still has a lot of speed. He just doesn't show it as much, at least on the base pass. Yeah. And that might be like a microcosm for uh, uh, watching Trout that you know, there's something you know, it, it all you can tell watching him how great he is. Like there's there's very few players, at least for me, that I can like you could see them thinking through the act of tracking a pitch where the the pitch recognition and the and the strike zone discipline and the back control are so good that like you could see how early they make the decision. It's like Trout and Soto and Joey Votto and and maybe you know, maybe one or two other guys. And that's always been the the thing that um it really stood out to me most watching him that 
you know, for somebody who's one of the most physically gifted athletes to to play this sport, definitely now, maybe ever, uh, for you know that his his greatness has always been kind of subtle. Like you don't see the the um, the Fernando Tatis, you know, trying to uh, come home from from second on a ground ball or that double jump or you know, he, and he doesn't do the you know. It, he hits a ton of home runs, but they're not 470 foot tape measure shots like some of Otani's. And you know, it's it's interesting because I was trying to think of like you know what's the iconic Trout highlight, and <laughs> it's a tough one. He's a, he's got a very dis- yeah he's got a very distinctive way of moving, so it's easy to to come up with a physical you know or a, uh, to come up with a mental image of watching him play. Like I'm never gonna forget what he looked like hitting, running, throwing, and so on, uh, but. You know, maybe it's just that the the Angels haven't had that you know that big postseason moment uh, with him um, with him on the roster, and uh, um, I guess we could talk about that again. You know, do our our bi monthly like come on Angels get your shit together thing. But you know, it, the one you know, it's not like he has the one five hundred foot home run or the scoring from first on a single or, or something like that, 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 uh, you know, every, or the, the Willie Mays catch, you know, and mm-hmm. I, yeah, I don't, I don't know if he's got something like that where it's going to be the definitive image of, yeah. of Mike Trout. I hope that's still ahead and I hope it comes in October because the, the one for 12 performance in the 2014 ALDS didn't really make a lot of memories, although the one was a home run. So that's something, but yeah, everything he does is sort of understated. I mean, I don't want to overstate how understated he is because like sometimes he will hit balls a really long way and sometimes he will beat out a ball that it seems like someone his size has no business beating out. So like his raw tools are really impressive, obviously, but I don't think it's quite as clear, clearly in comparison to Otani, as you said, like he doesn't have the classic sweet home run hitter swing. Like it's just, it's kind of a, a quick cut, you know, it's, it's very short. efficient. It, it reminds yeah. me of, yeah, it reminds me of Chase Utley, like a mirror image of, of that, yeah, like all like short arms direct through the zone and, right. and just, you know, no wasted motion. Yeah. It's not really a distinctive stance or swing. Like if you're a little kid and you're imitating the batting stances, like Trout, it's just so balanced. It's like the, the platonic ideal of a perfect baseball swing, I guess, but that almost makes it a little more forgettable or less salient in a way just because it doesn't have any strange characteristics. It's like just the the perfect swing distilled down to its essence or something. So I had a hard time thinking of highlights too. I mean, he does have some like home run robberies or is something that he has excelled at, especially earlier in his career. So I guess the signature trout play would probably be the 2012 home run robbery off J.J. Hardy, which uh, that gets replayed a lot. And he also had the one... In 2019, where he robbed Christian Yelich, which was kind of cool. Like, I don't think it was his best robbery, but it was cool because Yelich was the defending MVP or reigning MVP and Trout was a multi-time MVP. And so it was sort of like that Tory Hunter robbing Barry Bonds in the All-Star game moment where, you know, the hitter is just kind of smiling and tipping his cap, which Yelich did to Trout. So those are the ones that come to mind for me. But really, it's a career that can't really be measured that well just with individual plays. It's almost like the career highlight of Mike Trout is like looking at the war leaderboard or something, sorting by war, which is not a very dynamic image. But that's what I think of with Trout because it's just the steady accumulation of value. 
more so than the individual draw chopping play. Yeah, I'm I'm going to draw sort of a weird comp. Like he's sort of he's sort of like pre-steroids Barry Bonds where yep. the the numbers are just eye popping and the tools are just eye popping and obviously he's one of the uh, I guess I mean, this is sort of an interesting question for me is where Trout ranks right now among the the best baseball players who ever lived. Um, and, you know, so like I want to talk about that, but in a in a couple minutes. But like, you know, when you think of Barry Bonds, it's all late career. It's all, you know, the the home run off Eric Gagne or even like the the home run swing where, you know, where he's slamming the, the bat Stadium, down. Upper deck home run. Too. Yeah. yeah. You know, the like quick through the zone bat on the ground is you know is cross earring like you know waggling in the uh in the post swing effort or, or whatever um and all that came late for for bonds including the 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 postseason run that that everybody had been waiting for and i think this is something particularly before the playoffs got expanded it was very very common for players insofar as any of them exist for players like Trout to go their entire careers without any kind of notable postseason memories. Like Ted Williams, you know, had the one one game playoff and and one World Series, which which the Red Sox lost and he didn't play particularly well. And and so, you know, maybe this is something and it's not even like, I don't know, you think about great athletes who who never won a title uh, in American sports, like, you know, like Charles Barkley, for instance, or Dan Marino. And, you know, those guys all got way closer to a title than, uh, than Trout did, but, or Trout has so far, I should say, but it, you know, this was not an uncommon thing for, for, uh, to happen to baseball players. And, and that's sort of the class of, of athlete that we're, that we're looking at, at here is, is like Ted Williams. Like that's the, you know, the kind of player you have to really compare trout to in terms of, of what they've been able to accomplish on the field. And it's, you know, it's less, less unusual than, than we might like to think, uh, for athletes like that to go their entire career, only having maybe one shot at a title. And in a way, it's a useful object lesson. It's unfortunate that it comes at the expense of Trout, but just to convey that this is how baseball works, that you can have one of the very best players of all time and still almost never make the playoffs. I mean, that's something where some people might see that and conclude that Trout must be overrated, that he actually couldn't be that good or he would have single-handedly carried the Angels to the playoffs. But I think we would say that, no, it's uh, not a reflection on Trout. It's a reflection on the rest of the roster. And that's a whole topic for another podcast about how it's, the angels if nothing have, else it's a, it's useful because it means you don't have to take those people seriously because <laughs> that's true and, and you can just point to trout and say it takes more than one guy even if that guy is absolutely the best guy by a mile for much of his career that's not enough and in the angels case even spending on some other prominent players and bringing them in has not been enough which at this point obviously is a failure to have incredible talents like trout and otani and to not be able to get them to the playoffs. But it does point out one of the differences between baseball and, say, basketball, where you could go get one guy and that could propel you to the playoffs. And that just it doesn't work that way in baseball. Yeah. And that's something that, like, I really like about baseball. I think it like it's something that I really connect with on an emotional level is that you can't just like 
bootstrap your way to success that no matter how good one person is, it doesn't matter if the other 24, 25 people on the roster aren't. And, you know, it's about collective achievement and, you know, one person, you can't go ISO or you can't, you know, return the kickoff for a touchdown. You can't skate coast to coast. So the way you can't and, and, uh, and score the way you can in other sports, like you can get on base, but somebody else needs to, to drive you in. Um, and that's, you know, I, I think that's just a one, like, I think it's a useful reminder that this is a sport where the most common outcome is failure, like overwhelmingly. And it's it's good to be able to to learn to accept that and put it into context. But also, you know, it it illustrates the importance of even Mike Trout and Shohei Otani have to rely on their their teammates. And, you know, it's useful to remember that when you have success and, you know, remind remind yourself that your teammates were, were what got you there, but also to, you know, put failures in context and remind, you know, remind yourself that so much about this game is not within your control. And if, you know, if it were, then the angels would have, you know, would have won the world series every year. Yeah. Uh, but that's just not how the sport works. I meant to mention another reason why he maybe doesn't pop off the screen the way that some other players do is that a lot of his value is tied up in his plate discipline, which is among the best in baseball. And I don't know if that's an unsung skill in this era, but it's not the most visually riveting one. You know, you don't tend to see highlight packages of good takes, let's say. But You you don't, (laughs) but you can see it. I mean, this is sort of what I was getting at earlier, is that if you don't see it like... I don't know, like the 370 on base guys, you know, you don't see the the great play discipline, but you know, there's a very, very select few where I think you can, if, if you're looking hard enough, you can like, it, it does like come off the screen, you know, like I mentioned Botto and Soto and, and guys like that were bonds, you know, to belabor that comparison. Uh, you can see them processing information differently than, than most other people. Um, most other hitters can. So I think, you know, Trout is, I think that's generally true, but I think Trout is so good at it that you, you can actually see it just sort of casually watching the game. True. And another Trout highlight you tend to see is, you know, he's a low ball hitter. And so sometimes you'll see him hit a ball that's like ankle high or something and he'll hit it 430 feet and you wonder how he did that. So that's sort of a, a signature Trout thing for me too. So should we talk about where he stands right now, obviously he's going to add to his legacy, hopefully a lot in the years to come. But the thing about Trout is that even though he's just turning 30, you can already compare him to some of the best players ever. He was so good at such a young age that like we, you know, we've been making this comparison for, or making comparisons like this for, um, I don't know, like five years now. Like once it became clear that that one great 2012 season wasn't a fluke that, we were dealing with some like somebody you don't a literal once in a generation player. Um, and so I don't know, like the way I'd put it is this, if you want to take, this is sort of a complicated question. Once you get into, you know, guys like Josh Gibson and Oscar Charleston and Sadaharo who didn't, who didn't play in, in the majors. Um, but if you want, if, if you asked who the best player in, or sorry, who didn't play in major league baseball, quote unquote, um, that, uh, if you, if you want, if you ask who the best player in MLB history is, I think there are three, there are three answers that I would accept in Trout's one of them. Mm. 
Yeah. I, I mean, maybe that's been, a little aggressive, but like that's the I think that's the territory he's in. For years, we talked about the, you know, best war through age X stat with Trout, which he no longer holds that top spot just because of the pandemic shortened season and because of his injuries over the past few years. But even if he doesn't play another game this season, he already ranks fifth all time in war through a player's age 29 season, according to Fancrafts. And the guys ahead of him are all from long ago, in most cases, very long ago, Rogers Hornsby, Ty Cobb, Mickey Mantle, Babe Ruth. So to do that in this era against this kind of competition, I think he still has a legitimate case for being the best ever through this age. And, you know, you look at where he ranks on the all-time leaderboards. I mean, even at Baseball Reference, where his career war is slightly lower, you know, he's over 75 at both of those sites. And so the players he's next to are pretty much all Hall of Famers at this point, you know. And if he retired today, he would be a Hall of Famer, too. He has already had a Hall of Fame career. And hopefully it's half of a Hall of Fame career so that he ends up with Ricky Henderson, where, you know, the line about how you could cut him in two and have two Hall of Famers would apply to Trout, too. And that's a big question, obviously. And there's a lot of uncertainty about that because you just never know how any player will age. And Trout, with his durability problem, in recent years, that doesn't seem like the kind of thing that would get better or that you'd expect to get better as you get older. So who knows? Like maybe you can just double his war right now and that's his career, or maybe he'll tail off dramatically. Who knows? But it would not at all surprise me if he had an Aaron or Mays type career where he was still hitting really well at, you know, age 39 or 40 or whatever, even if he's more limited as an all-around player. And you know, I don't know how long he'll be a center fielder. Like, I think he is still perfectly competent as a center fielder, but not a standout center fielder. And I even saw some suggestion that if and when he comes back this season, they might put him in a corner temporarily just to not stress the calf. And I wonder if that happens, whether that might just sort of segue to the next act of his career where he is more of a corner guy. But, you know, it's going to be years until he is an all bat player and even when he is an all pat player if his bat is any sort of semblance yeah. of what it is now like he's going to be good for a really long time yeah i mean this is what this is superstar offensive production for a dh and it comes from a guy who's you know he's not you know he's not willie mays defensively but uh the competent defensive center fielder who's also steal who, who or earlier in his career was stealing a lot of bases too and that's like what really put him over the top and i think what separated him from uh you know his potential from to use somebody who is contemporary has grown up Bryce Harper um and where you knew you know maybe the offensive production would be just as good or better but it was coming from from a corner so it's you know just a different a slightly different type of player um yeah i I do think that there's there's a possibility that his decline phase will sort of uh will you know get me to back off that really aggressive statement I just made, you know, where I put him in a class with Ruth and Bonds and that's it. Uh but you know, we you know, we've seen this with just to name two other all-time greats who currently play in the Los Angeles metropolitan area, you know, Albert Pujols and Clayton Kershaw. Uh, you know, when those guys 
fell off their historic pace in their uh, early 30s sort of changed the way we evaluated them from, you know, one of the handful of the best ever to, you know, you look back at the the career and they're just your garden variety first ballot Hall of Famer. I think that there is a possibility that uh, that that could happen to Trout. But like you said, like, you know, invoking Hank Aaron, I think is a it, that's not a bad comp. Like I could see him just being that consistent uh you know, 300, 400, 500 guy for another decade. Like, I think that's really, you know, that's a distinct possibility. Yeah. It feels to me like the worst outcome and I don't want to tempt fate here, but you know, he's been comped to Mickey Mantle his whole career. So maybe the worst outcome is that he has a Mickey Mantle thirties where he's banged up the way Mantle was, although obviously he's (laughs) much more clean living. Yeah. I suspect that Mike Trout's personal uh, (laughs) conditioning habits will lead to him having a gentler decline phase than one would imagine but but even mantle like mantle was worth the 25 war or so from age 30 on and if you tack that onto trout's career then he's a hundred war guy already and you know once you're at that hundred mark like you're already an inner circle type player i mean there are only like 30 guys in baseball history in that range so that seems to me like the low outcome for him and i think unfortunately you know missing the time that he has whether because of the shortened season last year or because of his own shortened seasons has probably taken him out of the running to like, you know, reach the the Bonds and, and Ruth kind of war territory. I mean, you never know, but it would I think be that, tough for him to get there. such a long timeline. It's hard to. Yeah, it's tough I've to hard project, to obviously. Yeah. And, you know, going after home run records and, and chasing Bonds and Ruth and that sort of thing. Like it's it's still well within the range of reasonable outcomes. It's just I think Zach wrote about that when he got hurt this year. Just, you know, we're we're losing large slices of his prime years here when he's at his best. And that takes away from the record chases that he might be on, you know, 10 years from now. I'm just I can't get past the insinuation that like people say that Mike Trout's boring. Imagine if he turned into Mickey Mantle off the field <laughs> in his 30s. Like they wouldn't yeah. say he was boring anymore. That's the thing. I mean, really, like with all of the off the field behavioral issues that so many prominent players have had, like we're lucky that Trout is what he is. I mean, could he be more scintillating? Could he be a better interview? Could he be a, a more magnetic personality? Sure, he could. But baseball has a lot of those guys now. And it's not the worst thing to just have like the the apple pie all american type guy who isn't all that interesting but is you know totally unobjectionable and seems like a good role model and signs a lot of autographs for kids and all of that like he's just he's wholesome you know and yeah he's kind of boring but we have a lot of entertaining players and some players who have made headlines for all the wrong reasons so you know what it's kind of nice to just have him being the the wholesome trout that he is yeah, when I so God, this talk about how long his career's been. This is four years ago. I wrote about Trout, the the celebrity, and part of him being, I think, like him being boring is part of the reason why, like, there's literally nobody in the world who dislikes him. Uh, like, it's you know, if you have any kind of personality, if you're, you know, in any way brash, you're going to alienate people. And if or if you're even if 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 you're, um, you know, Trout's in a ton of commercials and stuff. And he does, you know, does a lot of, of appearances and um, endorsements. But if you're everywhere, like 
like Michael Jordan was, you know, people are going to get sick of you. And I think he's been really smart. You know, I, I maintain like, this is one of the most impressive things about him is how he's leveraged his celebrity to get exactly what he wants out of it and nothing more and nothing less. And I think that's been, a you know, I don't know if this is cynical enough for it to, you know, for it to be described as a conscious decision, but, uh, you know, he's, I, I think he's just been very smart about, uh, um, managing his image or, or the people around him or, you know, whoever's ultimately making those decisions. But you mentioned like him signing autographs. I think like the images of Trout that really come to mind are, um, you know, that commercial where he's you know, playing catch with the kid in the stands, Yeah. Uh, you know, him signing autographs and laughing and, you know, like tossing a baseball to, to a kid uh, during pregame warmups and stuff. And, and that's those, you know, those are, are really like, not iconic, but like th- those are some of the first images of trap that, that come to mind for me, not necessarily golfing that low breaking ball into the seats or, or chugging down a first or any of the stuff that he does on the field. That's so impressive. Yeah. And I think there's hope for the angels within the timeline of Mike Trout's peak. You know, I've been watching a lot of angels baseball, obviously this season, and yes, they are at 500 again, which it seems they are doomed to be forever, but it's actually pretty impressive that they are 500 given that they've been missing trout most of the season that Anthony Rendon, who's now done for the year has really not been a a regular presence up up to this point. So a lot of things have gone wrong for them, and yet they are still in their same accustomed place. And now that they've established Otani as this two-way superstar, and who knows if he can sustain that for years to come, but you figure going into next year, if you're counting on Otani to be an approximation of what he was this year, and you have a healthy Trout, and you have a healthy Rendon, and you know even in recent days, like there's been a bit of a youth movement for the Angels, which has been kind of encouraging. And they've had a a fallow farm system for most of Trout's career, but it's getting a bit better. And they've called up some guys who've looked pretty impressive. You know, Joe Adele is back now, and it seems like he's really leveled up. And Brandon Marsh is there, and Reed Detmers is there, and he's pretty exciting. And Chris Rodriguez looks pretty good. So, like, there's some young talent there, and it just it doesn't take that much. Like, if you do you're have such a sucker, <laughs> I can't believe you're saying. I know, you know what Charlie I think of when I think the of the Angels. I think of I think of Prometheus, <laughs> yes. who discovered fire and gave it to humanity, <laughs> and was chained to a rock for all of eternity, where eagles ate his liver every morning, and every night his liver grew back so they could eat it again. <laughs> That's a fair Prometheus comparison. Prometheus the Angels in this in this metaphor, but, and Otani and Trout are fire. But look, if you have Otani and Trout and you have Adele and you have Marsh and you have Rendon and you have Jared Walsh, who's broken out this year, maybe you'll finish 84 and 78. (laughs) They still need pitching. That's the perpetual problem. But Mm -hmm. I I think there is some hope. And, you know, you mentioned on our outline, like, is there any chance that he gets traded, that, that he ends up playing for someone other than the Angels? And it seems like he's content there, at least up to this point. Like he's he, chained to the rock. He chained himself to the rock. You know, he didn't yeah. have to stay there forever and, and sign the the biggest dollar contract ever with the Angels. But he seems to be happy there. And they hadn't won for a while when he signed that deal. So I know it seems frustrating for him. And it seems like he's sick of answering the how does it feel to never make the playoffs question year after year after year. So maybe he reaches a breaking point if they just can't put things together. And I don't know, maybe the Angels re- 
rebuild or something, and and they actually do look to move him. Like at this point, I think he is still well worth what he is paid, even though he is paid quite a bit just because he's so great. And obviously, that would change maybe as he gets toward the the back half of his career and his production tails off a bit. But you'd have to think that you know it's not like he's some untradeable albatross or something. Now, like he is still well worth his salary. It's just that there aren't that many teams that choose to play in that sandbox when it comes to deals of that size. So, you know, some teams would take themselves out of the running and you could only name so many, but, you know, maybe he can follow the the Pujols path and end up with the Dodgers someday and he can be yet another multi-time MVP on that team. Yeah. So before we get off trout, I have prepared a game. Since Zach is not here, I'm going to torment you with with another game. This game is New Jersey baseball player or New Jersey politician. Mike Trout, of course, being one of the pillars of the pyramid of, of South Jersey excellence, hailing from Vineland, New Jersey, a home of the Palace of Depression. I've learned through some Googling. Vineland is sort of past the dragons on the map that tell you don't, you know, don't go there. But uh, you know. Obviously, I'm very proud to to be from the same part of the world as one of the greatest baseball players ever, and uh, so are these people. Um, so I'm going to give you a name. You're going to tell me whether it's a New Jersey politician. New Jersey, by the way, is that place, you know, you go to the one side of Manhattan, you look over yeah. the river to the west. I've, yeah, I've you know, you might have seen it off in the fog. I've been driven through it because I don't drive. Uh there's a lot of there's a lot of driving in New Jersey. Don't worry, you're. I've, this is I've not an uncommon experience that you've had. Time. Yes, it's not the. <laughs> there are chemical like you know what Delaware is. Delaware is an it's a tax haven punctuated periodically by malodorous chemical plants, and that's the smell you get when you're crossing into New Jersey, at least on the southern end. I see. I it's won't Delaware's defend the smell fault. of North Jersey. Okay, it is Delaware. By the yeah. <laughs> like unironically, yes, Delaware's it's Delaware. Odors so. Drifting over New Jersey. I see. It's true. Mm-hmm. First name, Jim Florio. Oh, Jim Florio. See, that sounds familiar. I'm gonna say politician. Yes, Jim Florio was governor of New Jersey from 1990 to 1994, the last governor from South Jersey, and therefore the last governor who was worth a damn. <laughs> Second name, John Montefusco. Oh, baseball. Baseball player, correct. Yeah, Pitcher count. Uh, in the 70s and 80s. Possessed of one of the great uh, great nicknames mm-hmm. in uh, uh, recent baseball history. I guess it's not that recent. The Count of Montefusco. Yes. Boardwalk Brown. <laughs> uh, wow, that could go either way. I guess, boy, it sounds like a Peaky Blinders character or something, but I guess that's not an option here. I guess I'll go baseball. Baseball player. Well, he basically was uh, a Peaky Blinders character because he played for the A's and Yankees from 1911 to 1915. Mm -hmm. Uh, A native of Woodbury, New Jersey. Okay. Uh, Bill Dickey. Bill Dickey. Hall of Famer. Baseball player. Yeah, Hall of Fame baseball player, but not from New Jersey. Oh, no. Bill Dickey There's was from Bill Louisiana. Dickey. It's a trick question. Oh. Bill Dickey was the speaker of the New Jersey General Assembly oh, of course. in 1970. That Bill Dickey. It's a trick question. Yeah. And uh, the last name, Andy Messersmith. Andy ah, Messersmith. Baseball. Andy Messersmith. Yes, baseball player, most famous for the Messersmith decision, which inaugurated free agency, born in 
Tom's River, New Jersey. Yeah. See, this home of this game is flawed compared to the college pitcher or uh, or, or actor. I thought game. about using college pitchers. I've heard of but... some of these people. <laughs> That's the problem. But uh, but good game. I'm, I'm glad I did okay. Although Boardwalk Brown was kind of a guess. But one last point about Trout because uh, you had one little last bullet point on our agenda. How has he changed the way we think about the game? And I don't know that he's changed the way I think about the game personally, but I. Do think the way that he, I'm I, glad you brought that bullet point yeah, back in I, after I was ready to move on to the next <laughs> sorry. segment. Sorry, <laughs> here's the thing that that we weren't going to talk about, but I'm going to talk about anyway I, to say it wasn't a good idea to I talk think about it. Is it important so. because uh, I think you know we mentioned war, or at least I mentioned war several times in this segment, and I don't think that's an accident. Like Mike Trout is as associated with war as any player is associated with any stat, and I think his rise alongside war's rise in the national baseball consciousness. I, I don't think it's an accident. I think Trout really helped us appreciate war and war helped us appreciate Trout. And I've been thinking about that more with Miguel Cabrera closing in on 500 homers and thinking back to those MVP races. And I would bet that they would go differently today, that uh, even if you did have someone going for a triple crown, which who knows, maybe we'll we'll see that come back into play in a couple months with Vlad Jr. and another angel Shohei Otani, but I do think that uh, Trout's success and especially his success as an all-around player early on and the way that war made him stand out more so than any of the other back-of-the-baseball card stats did, I think that really helped propel that into, you know, really a, a household stat that you will see in major mainstream media outlets where it won't have to be explained anymore. I think that's a good answer. That's not what, that's not the answer I had prepared though mine was it trout sort of demolished the idea of of prospects coming up in their late teens or at age 20 and like needing time to get adjust to, yeah, adjusted yeah, to adjusted to the big true. leagues because he was at the front of that vanguard and harper too uh where they came up in 19 or 20 and then we and just clicked right away we're, we're all stars or superstars and and then Carlos Correa did it, and then you know Vladimir Guerrero and Soto and Tatis, and now you know it's it's fairly common. Like we almost expect, like you know, there was people were crying service time manipulation when the uh, when the Royals didn't break camp with Bobby Witt. Like it, he's completely broken the expectations, or ch- I think you know, legitimately yeah. change the way we think about the aging curve. So that that was going to be... Yeah, or when uh, Jared Kelnick or Wander Franco comes up and doesn't set the world on fire immediately, people wonder, what's wrong? <laughs> and that's kind of normal. Yeah, and, you know, it's it's sort of... He's sort of like Ruth. I don't know, this is sort of what... Uh, I remember Bill James writing this about Ruth years and years ago, where everybody thought it was a bad idea to try to hit fly balls, and Ruth proved that it wasn't. And... You know, it doesn't work for everybody, but he proved that it was possible. And I think that Trout did, you know, Trout and and some of the players who came behind him proved that it is possible for like a 19 or 20 year old hitter under the right circumstances to uh, to break in and and tee off on big league hitting. And so, you know, it's not common, but uh, I think it's it's definitely something we expect or or hope for from prospects more than we did 10 years ago. Yeah, that's a good point. Um. Speaking of New Jersey baseball players, there were two Hall of Fame outfielders from the 30s named after Waterfowl, <laughs> Ducky Medwick and Goose Gosselin, both uh-huh. from New Jersey. Oh, nice. All right. Uh, one quick news item before we go to the unnamed weekend preview segment. Um, Team USA won 7-2 to 
against South Korea at the Olympics. They were going to be playing for a gold medal. Eddie Alvarez is now guaranteed a medal, making him the sixth person ever uh, to medal in both the Winter and Summer Olympics. So congratulations to Eddie Alvarez and Team USA. It's ridiculous, by the way, that we have the bronze medal game and a winner-take-all gold medal game. Like I know this works out well for Team USA, so I'm not that upset about it. But there's a winner's bracket and a loser's bracket, and the team that comes through the loser's bracket doesn't have to beat the winner's bracket team twice. And that's just mm-hmm. not how it should work. It it. <laughs> Ugh. <laughs> yeah, I uh, I have not consumed a lot of Olympics, as you might expect, but I am planning to watch this gold medal game. And there is a gold medal softball game, U.S. versus Japan, and Japan won that one. So U.S. will try to get we its must revenge avenge ourselves yeah. against uh, Masahiro Tanaka making another start against the U.S. team because the, the last U.S.-Japan game, which took place at not the most convenient hour, but uh, that's kind of a staple of these Olympics, but it was a really good game. And so many of the the best Japanese players from NPB are playing in the series just because the NBP, NPB took the took the series, it took some time off so that its players could go play there. But as we've discussed, it's a, a nice mix of up and coming prospects and remember some guys on the U.S. roster. So I will enjoy that game, I think. Yeah, I watched the uh, um, not the Korea game, but the game against Dominican Republic, Scott Casimir, who grew his hair out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Old move for a man in his late 30s, <laughs> growing his hair out, uh, shoving against the DR. Tristan Cassis has been has been really impressive. Uh, I think that that's somebody who, uh, I don't know, I, I do tend to, I, I like that aspect of Olympic baseball where it's a combination of remember some guys and, ooh, you know, who's this, this young guy who's, uh, you know, coming in out of nowhere. And I think Cassis might be, that guy from this roster the way like Strasburg or Brett Anderson was uh, on the last team USA. Mm -hmm. All right. We're going to try to, well, getting out of here by the top of the hour seems to be that ship seems to have sailed. So we're going to buzz right through the unnamed weekend preview segment. Uh, My pick this week, uh, violating the ordinary. Don't watch the Red Sox unless you have to rule to highlight Red Sox versus Blue Jays because so much of the activity at the deadline uh, made sense for teams like the Blue Jays who are out of play or the Yankees or the Phillies, you know, teams that are just out of playoff spots like they're still in it, but they have to get the work done. And, you know, these are big deficits they have to overhaul. And the these interdivisional games against teams are they're chasing are where you have, you know, where the week gets separated from the chaff. So I think this could be, you know, not only because I think it'll be a fun game between, or a fun series between two good teams and the the Jays have Alec Manoa and Hyunjin Ryu throwing. So, like, the games themselves should be pretty good. But also, I think this could really be a pivotal series uh, in the AL East race as the yeah. Red Sox have sort of floated back to the pack. Well, I will stay in the East, but go to the NL where we have another close race and a good matchup. And it seems like when Zach is here, he is always trying to recommend that people watch the Phillies. And lately, at least, uh, watching the Phillies has been pretty rewarding. And this weekend, they are going up against the Mets. And new acquisition Kyle Gibson will be facing off with Marcus Stroman on Friday. And there is very little separation between these two teams because the Mets have hit a rough patch and the Phillies have been on a little roll recently. So, they're close and they made some moves and suddenly this is a a pretty exciting division race so looking forward to seeing who comes out on top in this series i'll watch that if bobby's still on vacation um (laughs) we'll see him being him being away like i said off the top of the show has been really good for the the nle story so here's hoping he never comes back (laughs) 
All right, that'll do it for this week's edition of the Ringer MLB show. Uh, Be sure to follow us on Spotify at Ringer Baseball, where you can catch our shows new every Friday and the Q Baseball Barbecue every Tuesday with Jake and Jordan. Uh, Thanks to Ben for joining me as always. Thanks to Sasha Ashel and Mike Morgan for producing today's episode. Thanks to Mike Trout, Max Scherzer, and Shoeless Joe Jackson for giving us stuff to talk about. And thank you for listening. Enjoy the week's action and we'll see you next time. 